Welcome to the Ecom Wiz Podcast, a podcast that helps Amazon sellers to dominate the marketplace. And I do mean dominate. Dominate. Each week, we deliver the best interviews with some of the top Amazon influencers in the industry. This is the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Hey everyone, it's Rob Stanley with the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Today's special guest, who's been on the show before, is Jeff Schick. He's an e-commerce attorney from ecomattorneys.com. Jeff, thanks for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rob, for having me. I really appreciate it too. Hope that we can share some cool knowledge with uh, with all the subscribers. Yeah. So last time I actually we had Jeff out at our uh, feedback with his office, and we did a meetup, and it went great. And I took all his audio info and put it up on our podcast, and got a lot of people actually commenting on it and listening to it. So I figured. Hey, new year, let's do another follow-up. And we figured this year though, we're gonna talk a little more about how to kind of keep your account from getting suspended, your Amazon account from getting suspended. So one of the first questions I wanna start out with, Jeff, is what is the issue, like who Amazon sellers are contacting you regarding legal issues. What's kind of the number one issue you're hearing right now and how are you dealing with it? So the number one issue we've been helping sellers with is intellectual property complaints. Mm. So sellers are getting kicked off Amazon left and right because of either copyright complaints, um, counterfeit complaints, which usually are trademark related, uh, could be trademark infringement complaints, and then the last two big ones are design patent and utility patent complaints. So Mm. all those grouped together, we categorize as intellectual property complaints. And those, that's the number one reason we're helping sellers right now with suspensions because um, they may, it may be bogus, like in the case of retail arbitrage, a lot of our sellers in retail arbitrage have false counterfeit complaints, or it may be legitimate or illegitimate, depending on for private label sellers who oftentimes are unaware of what intellectual property rights actually are and what they might be unintentionally violating or being accused of violating by a, a competitor. So, Yeah, so that, that brings up a good question because you're talking about retail arbitrage. So a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York for uh, Ed Rosenberg's show. Yes. And Ed actually had somebody from Amazon there uh, on stage and asking questions. And one of the questions Ed asked was basically regarding like, uh, you know, you go out, you buy something in retail arbitrage, you send this receipt. And sometimes Amazon will like balk at the receipt, like thinking it's fake or something. So, I mean, how, is there any way to kind of like, I guess the, the right word is, like be careful where you shop at, like, cause you know, there's discount stores all the time and you assume that the items you're buying for retail arbitrage from these discount stores is going to be legit and you got the receipt to back it up. So what happens in a case like that? Like, is that something that I would come to you about or do I deal with Amazon directly on that? So it depends. Sometimes you'll go to Amazon first and try, um, but they don't always accept the documentation or may, there may be other stumbling blocks in which case then sellers come to me. And so I work, I help a lot of retail arbitrage sellers and especially with the documentation, you know, getting it to the right person at Amazon so that it gets reviewed and accepted, you know, Amazon still accepts receipts. So if you're shopping at a Walmart, Home Goods, TJ Maxx, Marshalls, you know, any of the outlet stores, those are totally fine. The issue comes up if you're buying from a uh, liquidation company, for instance, liquidation stores. Um, Amazon's not so keen on. So unfortunately, Goodwill arbitrage, um, they don't accept Goodwill receipts. The reason being is pretty simple when you actually, a lot of sellers, they don't understand it, that they think Amazon is being elitist. Um, but it really comes down to 
if they started accepting goodwill receipts as proof of authenticity, then you would have this just influx of donations at goodwill of counterfeit products, um, most likely at the Port of Los Angeles, and then it'd just be, you know, and then you'd have these massive retail arbitrage groups going to goodwill and just buying products back from goodwill that were previously donated and then sending them in and saying that they're authentic. Um, obviously it would not be authentic product. And so the reason that's why, you know, with goodwill, there's no way to prove the supply chain, but Amazon, as long as it's a reputable store that you can prove supply chain authenticity, you know, uh, you know, any of the standard bricks and mortar stores that are name brands, Amazon's going to be fine with it's the smaller businesses that sometimes you run into issues. But the nice thing about Amazon is, Say, you know, if you go to one of these mom and pop shops, like say you go to, you know, discount general store, you know, of Sacramento and it's, you know, a small mom and pop company and you tell them what's going on. A lot of these store owners will, you know, they don't want to, but if you talk to them and you say, you know, heart to heart, you know, my business is being held up by Amazon because I purchased these products from you and Amazon doesn't know who you are. You know, they will often give you their wholesalers receipts. So you'll even, you know, they may tell you, you have to promise you're never going to contact the wholesaler directly and try to cut them out. But it's a fair trade to tell, to, you know, to be honest with them and give them your word that you won't do it. And Amazon will accept, you know, multi levels. So we've gotten sellers back on by providing, you know, here's the seller's receipt from small business, a small business purchase from small business, B, you know, mid-sized business B who purchased from national distributor C and provide all those supply chain receipts along the way. And Amazon then reinstates the account and, accepts the, the documentation. So it all comes down to trustworthiness of supply chain. Yeah, that, no, that's perfect. And I mean, it, so like you just said, it, it, you got to show the path going back is basically right where right. it originated from and how it got there. So that way there's proof to say that it's a legitimate product. Yeah. Now, what about on, let's say uh, you're over in China, you're going to these factories, you run across a product and you're like, man, this would be great to sell or hey, this has a brand name on it. How reliable is it buying from some of these factories, some of these products that have brand names on them? And, and you're obviously going to give, uh, you're going to give Amazon a receipt showing, you know, or invoice showing that you bought this from a factory. But I mean, how, how many times does that hold up? Never. Never. So that wouldn't. So if you're purchasing from the, pro, the product from the manufacturer and it like, you know, I might go take, go to the Apple iPhone, you know, the company that's making iPhones. I think it's Foxconn, right? If I'm Foxconn. not mistaken. Yeah. So I might go to Foxconn and say, Hey, I want to buy iPhones from you. Even though they're making products for Apple, the second they make the, the same product for you and put an Apple logo on it, it's counterfeit. Yep. So, so a lot of sellers don't understand that where they're like, Oh, well, they're just selling me factory seconds. Only Apple can sell you factory seconds. If they're buying factory seconds that they're, bear another company's trademark, it's, that's considered counterfeit. I'm Under the US very law, familiar right? with this, especially yeah. the Apple world, because that's where I came from. That's so, right. Yeah, no, you're, yeah, now I remember that. Cause. So the way, the way just, just so you know, what we did is we found the, let's say, screen or battery suppliers that supplied Foxconn, went yeah. directly to them, had them make one specifically for us, obviously without Apple's logo on it, without any naming on it, just a yeah. generic screen. And you are allowed to sell that. You're allowed to sell replacement parts as long as you're not, there's, and, and just to be uh, very careful on this, uh, you, you need to be careful on the way you title it, the way yes. you describe it, and even the condition of it. So right. I went quite a, round, quite a few rounds with Apple to make sure that when our uh, website was selling stuff that 
it was okay to sell it. And, and that'd be a little recommendation is, you know, if you're going to sell something, even a replacement part that doesn't have the name or trademark on it, uh, sometimes, and you may not always, but use somebody like Jeff to maybe contact the corporation and find out what wording is correct that I should use or, you know, how can I sell this as a replacement item, but it's not an original part. So, right. No, one of my advice. neighbors is launching a private label brand and they make um, auto parts or they're going to make auto parts private label. And he, you know, I, the first thing I was telling him is when you start selling these, it'd be compatible with Ford F-250. It's not a Ford F-250 wheel. It's a compatible with the Ford F-250 because the second you start making it look like it's an official Ford product, you're bordering on trademark infringement or potentially counterfeit depending on what you're selling. Absolutely. In fact, I, I remember correctly, there's actually a, one of the public pages on Apple's site tells you the wording you can use. Yeah. Um, it's been a while since I looked at it. It's been actually three, four years. But if I remember correctly, it was like battery for iPhone XYZ, you know, whatever it was. You had to start with that word. You couldn't say iPhone XYZ replacement battery, even though replacement is a good word to use, which you want to use that you have to say replacement battery four. And four yeah. was always that key word that they had told me. Anyways, not to get too yeah, much off the subject. Let's, right. let's go into some details though. With, with Apple stuff, you also have to watch, you can't use made for. IPhone made for, correct. You cannot you, use made for. You cannot you not use made for, yes. That is absolutely correct. Right. special one you have to pay a fee to use, so. Yep, absolutely. So, so let's say I'm in uh, Canton Fair or I'm over in China and I'm walking around and uh, I don't know, let's give it a good example because I know you have one in front of you, but we're going to describe it to everybody listening. And I see those blender bottles. Everybody's got blender bottles in China they want you to sell. Let's talk a little bit about uh, blender bottle issues. And then also let's generalize it and just in products in general, what to kind of be careful of and maybe how to do a little background research before you go private labeling it. Right. So blender bottle is like my favorite prop to use. Because it is Jeff, a, Jeff's holding up a blender bottle just so people are yeah. listening. So it's a uh, you know it's got it's a cool design. It's got this little this little um, lid that you can hook onto your backpack. Um, it seals shut so it doesn't have any like issues with when you're shaking it. And it's got this cool little ball inside that mixes up protein powder. Um, and it's got ridges on the side that makes it really easy to hold. So this is a great product to use. Um, it's not a good product to sell unless you're buying it from Blender Bottle. So the explain the issues why, on it. So the common issues with Blender Bottle is that it represents every form of intellectual property you can think of in the United States. So they have a trademark on their logo, which, so this, this blue logo here has a trademark on it. Does Blender they also Bottle. have a copyright on that logo. Yeah. They have a design patent on these ridges here. They have a design patent yeah. on the hook here for the uh, for connecting to your backpack. They have a utility patent on the ball, and they have a design patent on the entire bottle as a whole. So, if you go to sell this product, you're breaking every single intellectual property law in the United States, all in one fell product swoop. So it's um, you know great product. Buy it directly from them or license it from them if you want to sell your own version. So it's, uh, that's my word of advice for that. So what do those words mean that I was talking about? Um, copyright is pretty, it's the simplest form of IP protection. Copyrights uh, cover thought, um, cover um, words, images, um, anything that you design yourself, you know, pretty much, you know, it could be music, it can be, you know, TV shows, all, anything of artistic expression generally 
can be protected by copyright, and those are with the Library of Congress. Trademarks is the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Um, that covers uh, brand names. So the, it's designed to cover the origin of a good. So Feedback Whiz is trademarked. That's Gel's trademark. You know, Blender Bottle's trademarked. Uh, we have a trademark on FRS for our law firm and on our logo. So, you know, just goes to show you what can be trademarked. Um, and then design patents are pretty, you know, is a form of patent protection that covers the design. It's pretty self-explanatory. So ridges on the side of the bottle that look in a certain way, those are covered by design patent. Utility patents are the most broad form of patent protection, and that covers functionality and usage. So the blender bottle ball inside, this little ball that is part of the blender bottle, has a utility patent on it. So, and it also has a design patent too. They've got multiple. You can have both. What that means by them having a utility patent though is that you can't just simply change the look of this ball and throw it in another bottle and sell it. They actually cover any spherical object that's used for mixing, whether it's made from wood, plastic, or metal, any, any, any material is protected by their patent. And so you could make another sphere out of something else and you'd still be violating the blender bottle patent yeah. for this so ball. I was actually asking Jeff, I said, okay, what if I made a plastic sort of rod from the top of the uh, screw on lid that had sort of a ball on it that would blend because now it's not sitting by itself down in the uh, mixer. And yeah. Jeff goes, wait, that's covered. So tell them how that was covered by somebody else, Jeff. So this one's covered by GNC. GNC, so GNC makes a knockoff blender bottle. <laughs> that's exactly what Rob described. And they've got a patent on this. So it just goes to show you that patent can be, <laughs> just because you're not violating one patent, you got to watch out because there could be more. So yeah. patents are unfortunately the hardest thing to do a search on. And that's why you have you pretty much the best way to do it is to hire a lawyer. Um, we have a patent lawyer on our team. Like I, I'm not a, a licensed patent lawyer when it comes to utility patents. So I don't handle utility patent claims when it comes to you know doing searches because you have to watch out for so many, you know, basically hidden pitfalls. So yeah. when it when the benefit of using a patent lawyer to do a search before you launch a product is that if they give you an opinion letter saying that this product doesn't infringe, then that's considered evidence if you ever were to be accused of infringement that you did your due diligence. Whereas, unfortunately, like I've seen lately on some of the seller forums, that there are people from Fiverr that do patent searches for like seven to $25. Um, that's not evidence of due diligence and you can't, you, that doesn't hold up in court. You can't say, but this guy from Fiverr did my, my patent search, it doesn't work. So yeah, they're not a licensed attorney, correct? Correct. <laughs> Most likely. Well, oddly enough, you don't have to have a licensed attorney to do patents. Oh, that's true. <laughs> you just have to have a licensed patent lawyer, a patent, uh, patent, someone who's yeah. a member of the patent bar. But let's face it, if I want a piece of paper that's going to give me uh, reassurance that yes. it was done correctly, I want an attorney's letterhead, somebody who's gone to school, understands it. So, so just some advice I think we're going to give out then. So kind of to prevent you know, counterfeit type issues or patent type issues. If you're in China, I would usually recommend get, get as much information you can on the product, photos, descriptions, pricing, whatever you want. Maybe yeah. even get a list of several items. Maybe come back, do a little research yourself. But if you're going to go gung-ho into a product that you're hoping to make, you know, hundreds of thousands to millions of dollars on, uh, spend a few dollars to have somebody like Jeff or another firm or somebody go basically research this for you and give you the reassurance that 
you're all in on this and it's safe to do. Correct. Is that safe to say? Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, you know, a couple of dollars up front is much less expensive than the cost of, because you know, we've got one seller that we're working with right now and it's unfortunate because he was shut down for patent infringement and his product does infringe. Um, it's literally hits every element of the patent that is in question. And so now he's got thousands of units of inventory that he's sitting on that he can never sell. He can't sell them on, just because you can't sell them on Amazon, it's illegal to sell them in the United States. So if you can't sell them on eBay, can't sell them on Walmart, they're just, you know, at this point, they're going to have to be destroyed. And, and it's unfortunate because they've spent thousands of dollars to get those units. So yeah. it's, uh, it definitely, if before you, you know, go gung ho on something, you want to do your due diligence there and make sure it's safe to sell. One yeah. simple thing you can do yourself, you know, trademarks, you can search yourself. So go to the USPTO.gov, use the trademark electronic search system, you know, type in the names, type in, you know, different companies, see what trademarks they have. Like for instance, Lego has a trademark on the minifigure. Um, this is affecting a lot of retail arbitrage sellers right now because Lego's in a dispute with OYO. And so when they go to sell, I guess it's OYO or OYO, I don't know exactly, but it's mm. the OYO makes sports figure uh, minifigures for that are compatible with Lego. But the problem is, is that Lego's saying that they infringe on the Lego trademark um, of the minifigure. So yeah. trademarks can be beyond just phrases, words, and slogans. They can be things like minifigures. Um, the Coca-Cola bottle is trademarked by Coca-Cola. So that shape of that bottle is trademarked. So you can't go sell uh, you know, a product that looks like a Coca-Cola bottle in the United States or else you're violating that trademark. So lots of things can be trademarked patterns, um, Louis Vuitton, that checkerboard pattern or the LVs, those are all trademarked as well. So things, you know, you really got to watch out for stuff when you're sourcing. Um, Cause we see some sellers have come to me before and they're like, Oh, look at this amazing, you know, design I came up with and it's a unique private label product. And I'm going to go ahead and put the Burberry print on my packaging because it looks cool that, you know, like not that it doesn't say Burberry. They're not trying to make it look like Burberry. I mean, they are, but they're trying to make it just look high end or Tiffany blue. Like you can't use the blue box that Tiffany sends their products in. that's trademark. So you have to watch out for those sort of little pitfalls. And, and so it's just, uh, yeah. there's so many things, but you can, you can at least get started by doing it yourself a little bit to just do basic searches and knock out ideas. Yeah, I think I, I remember in the day, uh, T-Mobile, didn't they trademark their pink color or whatever they use or something, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. They have a trademark on that. Yeah, that, that's just crazy. Uh, yeah, so anyways, what we're, what we're getting at is if you're going to build up private label brand, go yes. through the different steps. I mean, get a hold of Jeff and, and you know, get look for basically protection of your brand. And that's basically what you guys are offering, right, is brand protection. Yeah. Why don't you kind of go through some of the different uh, services you guys offer for Amazon uh, sellers? So we tried to create, you know, an all-in-one law firm that is really your single point of contact. So we've got an intellectual property attorney who does uh, trademarks and patents. We've got Paul Rafelson who does the uh, tax and corporate. So like mergers and acquisitions, he used to work at Walmart and handle different, well, you know, billion-dollar mergers that they that they underwent um, in terms of acquiring, you know jet.com. So he was part of that team. Uh, he worked at Microsoft when they've acquired uh, Bing. So, you know, he's got a lot of experience that we've put to work for sellers when it comes to buying or selling an Amazon business. Um, 
most people also know him because of the tax world. He helped, you know, marketplace facilitator is largely a result of Paul Rafelson. So that's why you don't have to worry about paying taxes anymore on the 20th of every month to 30 different states. Um, and then myself, I handle all the Amazon suspensions, you know, Amazon strategy, anything Amazon related that's e-commerce, you know, no bigger too, it's nothing too big or too small for me to, to handle with the seller. You, you know, I'll take on the easy cases all the way to the complex cases. Yeah. And uh, let's also mention that, I mean, we're not just talking about Amazon. You guys also handle Walmart, eBay, uh, Shopify issues, right? So it's, it's not just that. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we're true. E-commerce attorneys is our website. We do all the platforms. Of course, most sellers are on Amazon, but it's, you know, but yeah, we handle, you know, right now I'm also working on a uh, Etsy claim right now, a suspension from Etsy. So it's kind of, you know, we run the whole, whole gamut. Yeah. Yeah. I'm assuming you got something placed to, let's say, I mean, this is something we hear a lot at Feedback Wiz and we obviously have a tool to alert people, but hijackers, like people hijacking your listings. Is that something you guys handle and what kind of process you go through for that? So hijacking is an interesting one. We give a lot of guidance to people, to sellers on how to handle it when it happens. Um, earlier today, I had a conversation with a seller about how one of their competitors had basically infringed on their copyright um, and their trademarks. And it, even though they didn't jump on their listings, they basically stole all their images and, you know, product designs. So, you know, hijacking is a broad term on in the Amazon circuit. Um, sometimes you'll have people that join your listing and, you know, it's a Chinese knockoff product that's not even anywhere close to yours. You know, we give the guidance on that as well. Um, so hijacking, you know, it just depends on the situation. There's no blanket, uh, response on how to always handle it, but we give guidance to sellers to help them figure out the best course of action. Yeah. Sorry. So what, what do I do if I see that the company that I'm getting it from that's enforcing the map isn't following their own map? I mean, obviously I contact you, but what, what kind of process involves? Should I try contacting them first or go to straight to you? So you can contact them first and see what their plan is. You know, why are they not following map themselves? Map is kind of a really touchy legal issue because in certain states, it's uh, unenforceable. Like you can never have a map agreement. That's considered price fixing. Mm. Um, a lot of times where companies get that wrong is they will make companies sign map agreements and that's like a huge, you know, red flag. Um, so what we help sellers with, you know, there's recently we had a wholesale client who is a wholesale for many brands and the company they're buying from uh, was a sports nutrition company. They started selling products below map on Amazon and and then started and then reported that you know reported all the unauthorized sellers as selling counterfeits, and so we stepped in and we reached out to that brand and we talked to their lawyer and educated them on how you know brand registry is not where you remove an unauthorized seller. It's you know you can't say someone's selling counterfeits just because they're below map or just because they're not an authorized seller. But that you know it, it got into a really touchy area because of the fact that map was involved and map it is a it can be an antitrust concept. So. Sellers have to watch out because if they reach out to the brand and say, you need to raise your prices, that could be construed as antitrust. If they reach out to, if the brand and the sellers agree to fix prices because they sign a map agreement and it's a signed map agreement, then that can also be antitrust. So map is like, it's one of the areas that people think is the easiest thing in the world to do, which is why you have so many brand enforcement companies out there now that are not, um, you know, not, not following the law but it's one of the most legally challenging areas for a company as well. So for retail arbitrage sellers, it can be um, 
it can actually be a really beneficial to, to point out where map is being done wrong. Usually is one of the best ways we help retail arbitrage sellers when a brand does violate the line. So it kind of, it really should be handled by lawyers in my opinion. Yeah. You could reach out though first and at least just try to see what's going on. A lot of times they won't talk to you though because they don't want to create that de facto agreement. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's good information and, and something that I don't hear a lot of people talk about, but I've heard those questions come up. So, yeah. you know, cause I mean, in the Amazon world, we're dealing with so many, you know, different people, uh, retail arbitrage, private label, you know, just resellers in general. I mean, there's, there's a lot of different stuff going on out there. Now, what about uh, somebody, let's say that uh, I've got a private label, it's up at selling on Amazon, somebody jumps on the listing and I've heard, unfortunately, I've heard this, and I know you, you and I have talked about it before. People run out, they get a, uh, they create their own letter to send off to the person to try to get them off the listing. Uh, and basically, you've told me, and, and I totally agree with you, this is not, not the right way to do this. And they yeah. you know, find some legal, what they think is a legal letter on the internet, and they send it out. Let's yeah. talk a little bit about what is some of the issues you can run into trying to handle it yourself and you know, misconceptions out there versus just having an attorney do it and do it right. So when we do it as an attorney, you know, we send out a thorough letter. It's on law firm letterhead. It's got all the laws that are being violated, examples that say why, it, you know, why we're right. <laughs> and basically send that out. And, it's, and we usually don't send it by email. It's usually sent by UPS. So that way it has more more authority and more force. When sellers do DIY, it usually is you know, full of errors. So like one seller I was helping this week sent me a cease and desist letter that she received from a brand. The problem is, is that the brand just filed for their trademark in December and gave used the serial number in place of the registration number and was demanding damages. Now, as any private label seller will tell you, the most agonizing months of being a private label seller is the months between when you file for your trademark and you've got just a serial number and when your serial, when your trademark registers and you get a registration number. So that company that just filed for their, their trademark has absolutely no rights until it registers. And so sending out cease and desist letters themselves, it didn't do anything because we didn't even bother to respond because once we saw that they have no trademark interest, there's really no point in even bothering to, you know, it would cost the seller more money to, to respond to them. So we told them just throw it in the trash. There's nothing they can do. Yeah. So it's, um, so, but writing it yourself, you run into those risks because what you might think is the law, your understanding might not be completely accurate. And all it takes is the other party receiving one of those letters to take it to a lawyer and you'll find yourself either being ignored or worse, you could actually be sued for, you know, tortious interference or some other claim that they might hit you back with because you might be enforcing rights you don't actually have. Yeah. Um, when it comes to cease and desist letters, you know, for private label products, usually that if you're having an issue with hijackers, the best course of action we're sending people these days is to transparency because transparency allows you to control your supply chain and make sure that only your products show up on your listing. I know it costs five cents to 25 cents per product extra because you have to apply that sticker but it's the easiest way to make sure that your manufacturer is not selling factory seconds out the door that end up on your listing or that somebody else is purchasing your product from a product that looks like yours from Alibaba and sending it to your listing as well. So transparency actually does for private label sellers really help in that regards. Yeah. And it's the cheapest solution. 
Yeah, one solution that uh, Steve Simonson had suggested, and uh, he's done a lot of manufacturing, is if you're doing a mold, for instance, uh, have them put imprint your name or your trademark or your logo, whatever it is, into the mold. That's perfect. Yeah, that usually helps. Now, it's not that they couldn't fill that area of the mold in and still make extras, but at least it, it cuts it down, the possibility um, and also signing an agreements with the factory, you know, that basically yeah. says that, you know, you're exclusive to this product and will they make another copy of it? That's not, I mean, yeah, they probably could, but at least there's some there. And then the other thing I want to bring up re- regarding uh, the letters is that it's not a one letter fits all. Like it, each time somebody violates it, it could be different. So just because right. you go to Jeff and he gives you, you know, he sends a letter out and obviously gives you a copy of it doesn't mean you should take that letter and just use it every time like a blanket one because each time it's going to be different. Isn't that right, Jeff? Absolutely. Yeah. No, we recently sent out a cease and desist letter for a client and because the person had ripped off all their you know, product packaging designs and even was using their name and one of their trademark terms on their, the competing product name. So we, uh, you know, we sent off a cease and desist letter to the seller but you, know, you wouldn't be able to take that same letter and use it again because all the details that we wrote for this five-page cease and desist letter that was sent out were surrounding how this you know, product A made by our seller had all this intellectual property, you know, copyrights that were registered copyrights, registered trademarks, and then and product packaging with registered trademarks and copyrights. And that product, you know, product B by the offending seller was violating all those. And we had exa- specific examples showing, you know, Here's our copyright and trademark, you know, number for this. Here's our, here's what you're saying. You know, the pro, you're using our product name on your packaging. Like that's direct, you know, but he wouldn't be able to then take this and apply it to product C because now it's a totally different product unless he goes through and does that whole analysis or else it's going to look funky. And it's also no longer going to have be on law firm letterhead either. So yeah. because it's just going to be coming from him, even though it's written by a lawyer, it's not going to be as strong when it doesn't have our you know, letterhead at the top. I think that's a bit of advice you just gave. If you, if you are taking Jeff's letter and rewriting it, take off their letterhead because it didn't come from them. So yeah, because it now- Violating <laughs> another issue. Yeah, that's forgery. And, and believe it <laughs> or not, you know, we have had one instance where somebody called to verify a letter that we supposedly wrote and um, it was actually Amazon and we didn't write it and we didn't verify it and that seller is no longer selling on Amazon. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. it- you can't just, you know, hijack a lawyer's name and use it and think that it's going to work. It, you know, people do call to verify the phone number at the top of the letterhead and the phone numbers on our website. Yeah. I mean, and the reality is, I mean, anything legal is going to be usually a little expensive, but you got to think about in the long run what it could cost you by not doing it. Right. Absolutely. And also, if you're building a business to sell, which most sellers are building a business to sell, you want to have proper trademarks, proper copyrights, proper patents, because all those things, like, yes, they cost more money when they're done by a lawyer compared to DIY. But the reason why General Motors and Ford and Coca-Cola have value is because they have such goodwill that was produced over the years and such strong intellectual property portfolios. So if you're not going out there and getting that strong intellectual property portfolio or, you know, the proper, you know, LLC agreements and the proper, you know, cease and desist letters, then your DIY company will never progress to that next level when you want to go and sell it because you don't have those foundations to sell them. Yeah. And, and full disclosure, I have paid Jeff to do a couple trade, help me with a couple trademarks myself. Yes. 
Uh, <laughs> yes, so, yeah. Even though I'm current, I currently do not sell on Amazon as another full disclosure. I do not sell on Amazon. Uh, but Jeff, I just, I had a few trademarks that, uh, I wanted to keep and Jeff helped me with that and I did pay him to do it. So, but let's, let's talk a little bit. I just want to make sure everybody knows so they don't, you know, they, they understand full disclosure here, but yes. let's also talk about like Jeff knows a lot about Amazon and there's a reason I've had him on before and why I have him on again this year. And Jeff, talk about your background of selling on Amazon and where you kind of came from and, and why you have not only as an attorney, but a little better understanding I'm not going to say it as other attorneys, but you just got a little better understanding than some. So I've been in the Amazon ecosystem. That, thank you for that. It's a good intro. I've been in the Amazon ecosystem since 2011. I actually opened my seller account roughly two weeks after the switch between when they used to have daily payouts and every two-week payouts. So I'm on the, I was two weeks late to the party. So I have every two-week payouts on my seller account. But I've had that account since 2011, and it's... Um, and so I, that's how I actually, I paid for, like I bought my first MacBook in college with selling on Amazon. And then I eventually paid for law school by selling on Amazon. So when I was in, in law school, I'd grown my Amazon business. I have a vendor central and a seller central account. I grew that to seven figures and that's how I paid for law school. And then now as a, an attorney, I still help some brands who want to sell on Amazon, but it's obviously I'm more focused on helping sellers. But the great thing about having had all this experience with selling is that I've, you know, I know about detail page you know, creation, so I understand the technical side, but I also understand the, the legal side. So one of the brands I helped uh, design detail pages for is an animal health company. And so from, I got to wear the SEO hat of helping make sure their you know, pages were optimized for conversions, but then I also got to wear the legal hat to make sure that they didn't violate any FDA laws. So it's kind of a, a cool best of both worlds that I've been helping you know, sellers with. And so when they, when sellers come to me and they have an issue or a question about Amazon, um, it may not even be anything legal related, but I usually have a pretty good understanding of what's going on because I've, just, I've been in their shoes. Yeah, so. absolutely. Which I, I mean, to me personally, personal opinion, it makes a difference having somebody who's been there in the trenches, sold on Amazon, understands the headaches you're probably going through, may even have experienced it themselves. Yeah. It definitely helps to have somebody who, you know, understands it and has a, a way to basically deal with it legally and get you going the right direction. Thank so you. Yeah, no, no, I mean, when it comes down, I mean, even like FBA, when I talk to my retail arbitrage clients, it's like I prepped and shipped to Amazon when I added it up from law school, 250,000 items that I put, that I was there putting FBA stickers on and sending off to Amazon. So yeah. So it makes a difference because when they come and they're like, you have no idea what this is like. I'm like, no, no, I, I do. I, have, I understand it. And this is how we can help make sure your business is, is better. And sometimes some of the things I'm able to share are not anywhere law related, but they're just practical tips on how to make the operation run smoother. Like they can be faster to, to get folding tables in your warehouse. If you get folding tables or rolling tables in your warehouse to line items up, and work from left to right, it's faster than getting circular tables or random, you know, using random countertops in your garage to try to do things. You know, a $10 folding table, buying like, you know, five to 10 folding tables and lining them up your driveway can be so much faster than just sitting there with one little tiny, you know, desk that you're trying to bring stuff to and label, label products to get out the door. Absolutely. So since retail arbitrage, I don't know if you know the saying, you know, in today and then out the door by four, <laughs> or out the door in 24. So I used to practice that too. So 
<laughs> yeah, that's that's awesome. And, and remind me again, um, because it's been a little while, uh, yeah. as far as law firm, uh, you guys can handle any state or certain states. Uh, remind me again what you guys uh, handle as far as that. Yeah, so we can handle, um, most of the Amazon issues are federal law. So we can handle okay. federal law in all 50 states. Um, we work with a lot of international clients as well who have issues in the United States for tax or company organizations. Um, and then when it comes to state law issues, we can work in California, Illinois, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, and uh, Florida uh, presently. Yes. And uh, Virginia as well. So there's nice. the states that we've got covered in terms of um, in terms of state law. So at least all the major markets right now for, yeah. for Amazon and sellers. I mean, just so everybody who's listening understands, there, there's other attorneys out there that, that also have a good understanding of how Amazon works. Jeff and I just happened to connect. Uh, we have, you know, we talk all the time and we're always talking about things or if somebody contacts me, it's having an issue. So we're not trying to say Jeff's the only option out there. I just happen to be friends with them and he gives some great advice and he's willing to come on the podcast. So that's always nice. So Thank Jeff- you. Let everybody know uh, how they contact you, how they get a hold of you. And, uh, you know, I think you have a Facebook group now too. Go ahead and cover that. Yeah, so we've got our Facebook group um, right now. Uh, so I've got a Facebook page that I just set up a couple weeks ago. So it's uh, facebook.com forward slash Schick Jeff. So the name is down at the bottom of the screen, but it's S-C-H-I-C-K-J-E-F-F. Um, that's my Facebook page if you want to add me. Um, I've still got my personal page. Sellers add me there all the time. <laughs> add me on any of them. I'll, I'll accept it on for the most part on all of them. And then, um, and you have the link to the, sh the personal page if you want to copy that. To, yeah. To yeah. Or just literally just yeah. just Google his name or yeah. try ecomattorneys.com. I mean, that's another way to get hold of Jeff. He's yeah. always out there in the community answering questions and helping people and definitely, uh, you know, get a hold of him if you have a legal issue. Again, a, a kind of any e-commerce platform issue that you're having, get a hold of Jeff on that. Yeah, thank you. No, I mean, we've, like I said, we've been helping with more and more, you know, we're helping with eBay sellers now. You know, Etsy was the new one, intellectual property infringement on a Etsy yesterday. <laughs> so yeah. the first case I'm working on for that, which is quite interesting to just see how these different platforms function. And then of course, Amazon, we <laughs> can handle almost anything on Amazon. Sure. So. Well, Jeff, thanks again for being on the EcomWiz podcast. I really appreciate your time. And, uh, We'll have you on again, I'm sure, next year or if something comes up sooner. Definitely. Sounds great. Thank you very much. I appreciate right, it. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on the Ecom Wiz Podcast. Special thanks to our sponsor, FeedbackWiz.com. Be sure to use coupon code POD50 for 50% off your first paid month with FeedbackWiz. Again, the code is POD50. Please subscribe to the podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Join us next week for more great tips to help Amazon sellers dominate the marketplace.